Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. To bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me as always. This is the uh, Freedom Hut uh, Boston edition. I'm up in Boston, Massachusetts today uh, with our uh, iHeart affiliate up here. So I did a little bit of traveling over the weekend. A ton of news, as you have probably seen a good amount of it today. Things I'm I'm hoping to touch on, get into, uh, analyze, describe, and uh, take apart in our usual fashion here in the show uh, over the course of what we do. Uh, We are going to talk about the U.S. shooting down a Syrian jet. We also have Russia drawing not quite a red line on that, but saying some pretty ominous things about what Russian actions in Syria uh, might be. Uh, We have numerous uh, terrorist attacks to discuss from over the last uh, 48 hours or so. You had the uh, terrible attack outside of a mosque in London with a van uh, ramming worshippers. You had a van ramming a cop car on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, one of those famous streets in the world. Looks like another not thwarted, but just not a successful terrorist attack in Paris. And the only person killed, it's, uh, from what I've seen so far, is the attacker. Uh, also, uh, you have two killed, uh, two victims killed in a terrorist attack in Mali uh, on a tourist resort over the weekend. This one not getting nearly as much attention, but almost certainly jihadists there as well. Um, there were the interruptions of the Shakespeare production that has Donald Trump as Julius Caesar in New York City over the weekend. We will talk about that. And like I said, three acts of terrorism, a lot of politics, a lot more show than we have time for today, but that's a good way to start off the week. But I actually wanted to begin uh, with you uh, setting the stage, uh, getting a bit more of a reaction, uh, having a discussion about What do we make of the political conversation in this country now? Uh, Last week, there was that that terrible shooting that occurred. And there was, of course, the immediate outpouring of of sympathy from all sane and normal Americans across the political spectrum. Uh, But you would think that the the leftists, the, uh, the progressives... Those on the far left of the Democrat Party would not try to, to, to push right now. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong. You'd think that maybe there would be some sense of decency at play uh, right now. There'd be some sense of a common respect that would prevent anybody from, say, uh, in any way trying to give a discussion, a description of what happened there that was that touched on anything other than pure condemnation, right? Just, we, 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 this should just be condemned. It was an attempted 
mass assassination. And over the weekend, you saw reactions in the press to what happened here. You had uh, Scalise, you had five people shot. Scalise still in serious condition, I know, after multiple surgeries, Representative Scalise. And it wasn't, there was a, a period there where it wasn't clear that he was even going to pull through. People were very concerned and still remain concerned about uh, his his health and well-being given the horrific attack that was uh, inflicted on our elected representatives last week a a narrowly thwarted mass assassination i know there were uh, numerous wounded and scully seriously wounded but narrowly averted mass assassination this is not a complicated matter for the press to get right just just don't act like enormous jerks right now just just don't do something incredibly stupid for a few days because there's really no if ands or buts there's not a lot of room for well let's do some analysis for example of of representative scalise's politics as as if that has something to do with anything here but you had msnbc's uh joy reed she's a host over at msnbc say the following clip three please Steve Scalise has a history that it's we've all been forced to sort of ignore um, on race. Um, he did come to leadership after some controversy over attending uh, a white nationalist event, um, which he says he didn't know what it was. Um, he also co-sponsored a bill to amend the Constitution to define marriages between a man and a woman. He voted for the House health care bill, which, as you said, would gut health care for millions of people, including three million children. And he co-sponsored a bill to repeal the ban on semi-automatic weapons. Um, because he is in jeopardy and everyone is pulling for him are we required in a moral sense to put that aside at the moment yes the 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 answer is yes the answer is while he's uh fighting for his life in the hospital after a an attempted political assassination we we don't get into an analysis of his positions and and we certainly don't get into a slander of his character and background uh, because that comes far too close to saying, well, there was something here that was, for Republicans, for conservatives, self-inflicted, you might say. There was something here that uh, we can point to that is on the right as well as the left, even though the shooter, as we know, is a Bernie Sanders-supporting, uh, clear, hardline, leftist progressive. Uh, and again, I-, I don't blame Bernie Sanders at all, and I think that's completely unfair when people do that. Uh, but this is not uh, this is not a time to start looking for an opportunity to put blame on the Republican side. Uh, and yet you had Scott Pelley, former anchor of uh, CBS Evening News, saying the following. Play clip four, please. It's time to ask whether the attack on the United States Congress yesterday was foreseeable, predictable and to some degree self-inflicted. Too many leaders and political commentators who set an example for us to follow have led us into an abyss of violent rhetoric, which it should be no surprise has led to violence. To some degree, self-inflicted. You see, I'm quite clear on this, and I'm sure you are as well, that this was entirely, not to a question of degree, inflicted by an individual who... Uh, was trying to engage in mass murder. It was political. He is a terrorist, if you're going to use the 
uh, the classic and, and widely accepted definition of what a terrorist is, one who engages in violence to achieve political ends or for a political ends. And he is a man, uh, he was a man of the left, the shooter. Um, to say that this is to some degree self-inflicted, though, uh, I, I think that Scott Pelley is well aware of the choice of words here. And to me, it's, uh, once again, uh, the left trying to make it sound like there is some blame on the right here. Now, I, I'm, I'm in favor of being precise with our analysis over this. I'm in favor of saying, look, there's, there is a, a climate right now of, of rabid hatred against the president. And that that is that is unhelpful and that there are some people who might act upon the words of not not just random folks on the Internet, but major media outlets that believe that the president is a traitor, that we are heading towards fascism, that the United States is in mortal jeopardy right now because of the president and his advisors, his uh, his White House and his supporters. Uh, yes, that's a problem, and and we should certainly address that. Uh, but you'll notice that they won't allow that they are they are willing to do what any any person who had even a shred of decency would not do right now, which is to suggest well well maybe this is actually you know conservatives were attacked, Republicans were were shot at here, and and hit, and it was because of their party affiliation. I mean these were members of the. Uh, of the Freedom Caucus, these were conservatives, and this shooter knew it. You'd think that maybe they would back off the politics on the left a little bit. The well, this the, the right does do a lot of crazy things, and there are a lot of really bad people who are uh, oh, part of you could even say a rage machine. Here's the former editor in chief of the New York Times, for example, Jill Abramson. Uh, saying that it is, in fact, the Republicans that are the Republicans are responsible for the climate right now, which is really just a way of saying the Republicans are responsible for what happened last week to Republicans, which you're starting to see a pattern here, aren't you? Republicans were attacked. Republicans were targeted. And you've got people either insinuating or outright saying that Republicans are in some way at fault for this. Here's what Abramson said. Clip five. I do th think that both sides are not equally at fault and that there's been a bit of a false equivalency uh, at work, especially in the, the discussion over the past couple of days. Uh, I think that um, in terms of political leadership right now, that both President Trump and the congressional leadership on the Republican side are extremely divisive and that they are really benefiting from a kind of rage machine that operates in this country. What about the what about a rage machine of the left? Uh, you know, this is in, in such just poor taste. Never, never mind. The argument is uh, completely divorced from the reality of what's going on with groups like Antifa and groups like Black Lives Matter and groups that have people in in many cases, in large numbers, relatively speaking, engaged in destruction of property, in violent protest and, and in attacking people. Um, and also the intellectual precincts of the left, uh, the campuses, the me media outlets, 
that are asking openly now, well, is it okay to attack someone who's a Trump supporter because Trump is a fascist? I mean, they're just asking questions, you see. But here we are. It's only Monday. The attack just happened last week. And already the narrative has shifted, or I should say the narrative has come together on the left, that when Republicans are attacked for being Republicans and almost killed in large numbers, and we still have a Republican who's in the hospital, member of Congress, um, who is in rough shape, and we were praying for him and our thoughts are with his family. While that's happening, they want to pull apart his political record, insinuate that uh, that he is a racist, uh, talk about how maybe to some degree, quote, as Pelly says, this was, quote, self-inflicted, and then Abramson's talking about a rage machine. And I'm just picking a few. I mean, you could go with a lot more here. That's, it's the fault of the right. Even when the right is attacked, even when conservatives are the targets, the left says that the conservatives are to blame. How do you reason with these people? How can you listen to calls for civility when these are, remember, these are not, I'm not picking uh, random commenters off the internet. These are individuals with really large established outlets and followings and they have a voice that is clearly reflective of more broadly held sentiment right scott pelly and joy reed and jill abramson are not saying the kind of things they say about this in the aftermath of that shooting because they're the only people who think it they're playing to their audiences they're expected they think they're expected to say this kind of stuff that you know they, they, they don't want to allow there to be a political loss on the left as a result of this. You know, they're going to shift the blame. They're going to turn the narrative around from uh, in the first 24 hours, of course, it's, well, we should all just come together. Let's be civil. And then once they can get the talking points, it's, well, you know, actually Republicans are the ones that have created the toxic environment. Wow. That's where we are now. Media believes that even when Republicans are targets, Republicans are the ones to blame. It's just disgraceful, isn't it? Uh, I want to talk to you about the three terrorist attacks and the shoot down of a Syrian jet by a U.S. plane. This is a very uh, concerning escalation, and I think there's a lot more to come in Syria. Uh, Team, we'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. We've got breaking news, uh, and it's tragic news, unfortunately. Otto Warmbier, who is the young man who was detained by North Korea, um, he was 22 years old. He was in prison for a year and a half. They gave him 15 years hard labor in North Korea uh, because he, they say, allegedly took a propaganda poster from a wall, I think, Maybe they th- maybe he wanted a keepsake or something, um, but they uh, they finally released him. Did not happen under the Obama administration. Happened under the Trump administration. Should be noted. And now here we are, and he has passed. He was returned in a coma in a state of unresponsible, unresponsive wakefulness. And this is a a letter that was released from Otto's parents uh, just in the last couple of hours. 
It is our sad duty to report that our son, uh, Otto, has completed his journey home. He was surrounded by his loving family, and he died today at 2.20 p.m. It would be easy at a moment like this to focus on all that we lost, future time that won't be spent with a warm, engaging, brilliant young man whose curiosity and enthusiasm for life knew no bounds. But we chose to focus on the time we were given to be with this remarkable person. You can tell from the outpouring of emotion from the communities that he touched, Wyoming, Ohio, and the University of Virginia, to name just two, that the love for Otto went well beyond his immediate family. We would like to thank the wonderful professional, professionals at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center who did everything they could for Otto. Unfortunately, the awful, torturous mistreatment of our son at the hands of the North Koreans ensured that no other outcome was possible beside the sad one we experienced today. When Otto was returned to Cincinnati on June 13th, he was unable to speak, unable to see, and unable to react to verbal commands. He looked very uncomfortable, almost anguished. Although we would never hear his voice again, within a day the countenance of his face changed. He was at peace. He was at home, and we believe he could sense that. North Korea is an intense danger, uh, not just to its neighbors, but to the whole world. The North Korean regime is a, an evil one. It is the most authoritarian, is the most uh, statist government on the planet. And it is trying to acquire not just nuclear weapons, um, but the delivery mechanism for them over long distances. I mean, it obviously has tested in the past uh, and is trying to get further and further with its testing. Uh, so North Korea... Um, is already under tremendous sanctions. And I know that there is a sense right now among uh, many Americans that something should be done here, something must be done. I do think it is a fair question to ask, and I, in fact, believe that the father of uh, Otto uh, Warmbier said earlier today when asked this, why wasn't this young man freed earlier? I mean, we're talking about a poster, everybody. Fifteen years hard labor. I mean, I know the United States doesn't have diplomatic relations uh, but with North Korea, but come on. And the father of, this is from the New York Post, the father of Otto Warmbier, uh, when asked, the question is, do I think the past administration could have done more? He said, I think the results speak for themselves. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, that's the only way we, we can think of this now. Um, clearly not enough was done, and the North Koreans uh, acted in a, in a savage and brutal fashion towards this young man. And now we'll have to see if there's any response from our government. Given the sanctions and everything that's already going on, I have to, uh, I have to wonder what the U.S. response will be here, if, if much of anything. But we'll see. The Trump administration may hold them to account. All right, team, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Number of terrorist attacks 
in the uh, last 48 hours, uh, first uh, the the uh, terrorist attack in London, and I know that there's been some additional developments here uh, and more details coming in with each passing hour, um, but here's what we know so far. The attacker is an uh, individual named Darren Osborne. He's a 47-year-old from Cardiff, Wales, and the attack was outside of the Finsbury Park Mosque, where uh, worshippers were leaving. Uh, as you know, this is the month of uh, Ramadan, and so uh, workers were—I mean, work, worshippers were leaving the mosque. And reports were of one dead and ten wounded. And uh, Osborne, the attacker here, uh, was uh, was driving his vehicle, trying to inflict maximum casualties. He drove a white van. I believe is the same, uh, same make and and model as what was used recently for the uh, London Bridge uh, attack, or the the attacks near it. Um, so that's uh, that's the we have one dead, ten wounded there. Now, of course, there's an immediate, as there is after every terrorist attack now, a politicization of what's gone on here, and and people rush into a narrative. Uh, that they prefer or that somehow supports other aspects of policy that matters to them. And with this, we will be told once again uh, that, see, terrorism is something that happens to people of all different, or that rather there are terrorists of all different ideological backgrounds. Uh, terrorists come from every different kind of, of group, and that this is really just a problem of uh, I don't know, cr- criminality and mental illness mixed with politics and that it's overstated that the jihadists are a particularly dire threat. Uh, in fact, in, in this country, what you see, and this is how the left positions this, uh, you'll see think pieces, analysis and such that's done with the intention of showing that the, the real the real threat of terrorism comes from the from the, uh, the right, from white male uh, right-wing terrorists. That's where, and they'll concoct some uh, numeric analysis or they'll, they'll find a way to create this storyline that, that anyone who just reads the newspaper has a passing familiarity with what's really going on in the world uh, would say to themselves, well, that's just crazy. And it is, but it's a more comfortable narrative for whatever reason, for many uh, Democrats and uh, leftists in this country. They would rather believe uh, that Republicans or the the right wing and not jihadism, not just here in America but around the world, is the primary ideological inspiration for terrorism, right? We're not talking about the primary ideological opponent for policy matters, for terrorism issues. And so what happens after an attack like this is that uh, you have a C, I I told you so-ism on the left, um, that the Democrats, or in the case of the UK, the what, people who are laborites and socialists and leftists and just multiculturalists, those who believe that there's no connection whatsoever between uh, Islamism, jihadism, and terrorism, that is special, that is special in its... Uh, threat level and threat capacity. They point to an incident like what happened at the outside the Finsbury Mosque, and they say, see, uh, it's 
a problem that can happen with any number of different sounds. And as a matter of, or strictly speaking, as a matter of numbers, yeah, of course, terrorism of different kinds can happen with any number of ideological bases for it. And there are groups that, you know, in the past, uh, you can point to and say, oh, they've engaged in terrorism, this other group. In the UK, right after the uh, London Bridge attack, there were some people that were saying, well, you know, the the IRA waged a campaign against the Brits for uh, for decades. And, you know, that was terrorism. That was obviously Catholic, I- Irish Catholic terrorism uh, against Protestant uh, majority England. And they made no distinction between the fact that the IRA uh, had a completely different uh, method of operation from jihadists, had a different uh, philosophy, had a different end state. I mean, this is uh, this is like saying that all political violence is I- equivalent, right? All, all violence that is done in the name of politics is somehow the same, even when you're talking about, in the case of jihadism, a a cohesive, um, a, a coherent ideology that seeks to supplant every other ideology on the planet and that seeks actually global domination. And I know that sounds grandiose and crazy, uh, and to you and me it is, but to those who are willing to be suicide bombers or to be uh, lone wolf jihadist attackers in the UK or anywhere else for that matter, it's just a question of how long your time horizon is. Sure, the flag of uh, of jihad will not fly over the capital cities of all of the West and, and uh, America anytime soon, uh, but maybe in 100 years. And those are the kinds of long-term strategic goals that the jihadists have in mind. They're not seeking uh, to just win tomorrow, although they're seeking to slowly bleed us and spend us into oblivion over many decades, over many generations. Um, But to compare for, and people did this, to compare the IRA's campaign against what the Islamic State or al-Qaeda has done in recent decades is to just show uh, a, a complete... One, uh, historical ignorance, and two, a really uh, a, an obtuse immorality, uh, a, a lack of understanding uh, comparisons and a lack of understanding what is similar and what is not. Um, you know, this would be like saying, well, if somebody crosses the street and is a jaywalker, um, they're a criminal, the same way that if somebody goes around and you know, uh, strangles a bunch of people on the street. They're a criminal. I mean, they're both criminals. Well, no, that that's not a that's not a comparison that a a person should ever make, right? These are not acts that are similar. And I know people say, well, Buck, the IRA, political violence, terrorism, uh, the the body count, the uh, background, the tactics. You just go through a list, and that's not to say that what the IRA did was in any way excusable or acceptable, but to compare it to an effort to destroy the very civilization of uh, the United Kingdom and to kill as many people as possible for the purpose of murder as part of a death cult is to make a an error that has to be intentional, meaning that I don't believe that the writers who say these things and the pundits who say these things are really that stupid, but they believe that their audiences are, and so they're willing to make these arguments. They believe that their supporters are, so they'll say what is disingenuous and what they know to be wrong. Uh, and after, so that was after the London Bridge attack. Now you look at what happens here with the Finsbury Park Mosque. Uh, th- there's not 
some outpouring of support uh, for this uh, alleged terrorist, uh, Darren, not not that the terrorism is alleged, but he's he has not yet been convicted. Right. So we say alleged he's not if he were dead, I think we would say we would just call him the terrorist here. And it looks certainly like he's going to go to prison for a very long time in the UK for what he did, as he should. Uh, but there's not some ideology behind him that is supported by entire nation states. There are not people in countries sending checks to organizations uh, all over the world that support the ideology. We don't even know what Darren Osborne's ideology is other than he seems to be hateful. He hates people. And he's an imbecile and a violent one and should be locked up for the rest of his life. But he's not part of a larger effort with training camps, uh, with uh, organizations that are churning out textbooks and that are all promoting whatever he thinks his ideology is of hate. He, he isn't part of it. So there's he's a a lone wolf lunatic. And this is, I know, where the debate with the left often goes, because they say, well, see, every every time it's a uh, a I don't know, a, a crazy white guy terrorist somewhere. You all say, even though, for example, I mean, the, the Sarnayevs were Caucasian. I mean, in fact, if you go back and, you know, I was just in uh, in Boston. I still am in Boston, but I was in Boston for the weekend. And uh, the Boston Marathon bombing still looms very large, understandably so, in the minds of Bostonians. Uh, I did some of the sightseeing and, and the things that one does when one's a visitor in this uh, lovely and wonderful town. And I went down to, to the uh, seaport area, and, I mean, the police presence there, uh, you know, it, it felt like in some ways you, you could have been at a, at a checkpoint in, in Baghdad or something. I mean, it was really heavy security, really heavy police presence. And people still talk about what happened on Patriots Day or uh, Boston Marathon, uh, the day of the Boston Marathon bombing also, obviously the day of the Boston Marathon. Um, it, it came up a few times when I was doing tours and, and just walking around and talking to people. In different ways. Uh, so that terrorist attack looms very large, as I said, in the minds of Bostonians still. And those individuals, the Sarnaya brothers, were jihadists, but they weren't, uh, you, you would say that they're uh, from the Caucasus region. I mean, they're Caucasian, right? This is where we get the term Caucasian, by the way, which I know now we just say white, but people used to say Caucasian. And it's from the Caucasus Mountains, which is right where uh, Georgia and Chechnya and some of those parts of where, where Russia really becomes the Middle East or meets the Middle East, um, that's the Caucasus region. So it's not about race, is what I'm trying to say. It's, uh, they always try to make it about, it's, it's about ideology and belief. And so when I say it's about jihadism, it's not about uh, any person's skin color. The left likes to make it about skin color because they view Islam as a predominantly non-white faith tradition and therefore it falls under all kinds of social justice ideology that they have and oppression and, and anti-colonial feeling and all the rest of it. Um, but after an attack like this, what they want to tell us all is, see, uh, there's just as much violence on all sides. Um, isn't it interesting how it mirrors, in a sense, the way the left handles the discussion after the shooting that happened in Virginia of our uh, congressman? And the attempted mass assassination there, the tactic is to say, see, there's there's just violence on both sides. Well, 
no, I think it's more specifically a problem of, of the left in this country right now. I think the rhetoric is different, and we can make that distinction, and we should. When it comes to terrorism, you can crunch the numbers and look at how many thwarted. I haven't even gotten into the attack on the Champs-Élysées yet in Paris. Could have been a mass casualty attack, but it wasn't. I haven't mentioned, but I will, the jihadist attack on a tourist site meant to kill international people, obviously, as many as they could. They only got two. So I'm sure that, you know, for the jihadists, it wasn't the mass casualty event they were planning. But it's obviously a tragedy, and it's horrible for those people and their families that were killed at this uh, campsite, this tourist campsite in Mali outside the capital of uh, Bamako. Um, but it's not it's not the, the case. It's not true to say that there is uh, an equal amount of terrorism from all different ideologies. There is a specific threat right now. The world is under a specifically severe threat of jihadist terrorism. It is the only uh, ideology that espouses political violence in uh, in dozens of countries with all kinds of terrorist franchises, whether they're affiliates of al-Qaeda or ISIS or others. It's the only one that has entire nation states, countries like Iran, uh, dedicated to a form of, of or dedicated to forms of violence in support of Islamic conquest. It is a specific threat. This doesn't mean that there aren't other terrorists. This doesn't mean that there aren't the Anders Breivik, uh, that guy from Norway. and uh, uh, doesn't mean we can't bring up um, the uh, Oklahoma City bomber and these other issues that, that we keep hearing about from the left, of course. But let's not, let's not do, remember, you had a false equivalency charge from Jill Abramson before the New York Times. Let's not play the false equivalency game with terrorism. When it comes to terrorism, all of it is bad. I wish all of it would, I wish all of it would never happen and we could just prevent it all. But the threat still pre- is predominantly from jihadism, even in the aftermath of a terrible event like we saw over the weekend in London. It doesn't in any way lessen the, uh, the horror of what happened outside of that mosque. But if we're going to be deploying security resources and if we're going to be making decisions about how we go forward to stop more casualties, more deaths on the streets, more innocents killed as a result of some uh, psycho's political ideology, uh, we still have to focus on jihadism. I, I talked to you a little bit about what happened in France. We've also got uh, about the uh, attack on the Champs-Élysées there in Mali. Uh, we'll briefly get into that and then probably get right into the shootdown of a of a uh, Syrian regime plane. And we've got a lot of uh, politics to talk about, and we'll, we'll finish up the show later on with what happened at uh, Shakespeare in the Park with the mock Trump assassination as Julius Caesar Trump in for Julius Caesar in that Shakespeare in the Park production. That and a lot more, team. Uh, We will be right back. The Champs-Élysées attacker had guns and gas canisters in his car. This... Uh, from earlier today, there was a uh, someone who was suspected by the intelligence and uh, security authorities in France. Uh, he was on the security radar. Um, he uh, he w- he drove a vehicle 
into a police car uh, on the Champs-Élysées, which is one of the most famous uh, boulevards in Paris, one of the most famous boulevards in the world, and was also the scene back in April of an attack that shot dead uh, two, I'm sorry, shot dead a policeman and two others were wounded. That was just before the first round of the uh, presidential election there. Uh, In this case, you had the attacker uh, drive his vehicle into a police van, and they uh, got out and engaged him. No one else was hurt in the incident. This guy had a Kalashnikov, handguns, and and gas canisters in the car. Um, I have to say, I am somewhat amazed at, and I'm thankful for it too, but somewhat amazed at the lack of... uh, terrorist tradecraft and the lack of technical proficiency that some of these self-styled would-be jihadists have. Uh, Clearly, this guy drove his car into the van, I guess, thinking that he would do much more damage to the van than the van did to his car. Uh, And he was planning a much broader scale attack. Uh, You had bomb disposal experts had to come to the scene because they were worried that the car was rigged to explode. I mean, if this guy, instead of driving his car to that police van, and I don't don't like to do these, you'll think about what if, but sometimes you have to because, as I was saying before, if you want to understand the jihadist threat, you have to also take into account all of the attempted mass murders at the hands of these jihadist uh, psychopaths. You have to remember all the attempted uh, terrorist acts that could have killed dozens, perhaps even hundreds. Uh, if, if this guy, who, like I said, was known to the security services, according to press reports here, if this guy had just walked down the street on the Champs-Élysées with this, they're reporting it's a Kalashnikov, so let's just assume that they're right, with this AK-47 and started shooting, he could have killed dozens of people in broad daylight on the busiest, most well-known street in all of France. It would be like uh, walking around in... Times Square in New York City and just shooting people. He, he didn't do that, and I, I couldn't begin to explain why. All I can do is say how thankful we all should be that this is not a mass casualty attack. It was n- just narrowly averted today uh, because this guy. All right, team, we, we got to hit a break here. I've got more. We'll be right back. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. Let's talk about this shootdown of a Syrian regime jet by a uh, U.S. uh, F-A-18E Super Hornet. Uh, That's what's being reported. U.S. US F-A-18 Super Hornet. Uh, shot down an SU-22, and uh, the Syrian, uh, the Syrian regime, of course, claims that it was on its way to uh, fighting against the Islamic State, and the U.S. says that lots of warnings were given, and that the plane did not uh, divert, and that it was heading towards ground forces that are uh, backed by the United States. Uh, So that's now an escalation 
of what's happening in Syria because the Russian response, remember the Russians and the Syrians, the Syrian government, right? Syria is not really a country anymore in the sense that it's uh, been cut into pieces and you have different factions of it that are in control of different areas. Uh, the When we talk of the Syrian government, we're speaking about the regime of Bashar, uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, son of uh, Hafez al-Assad, and the Assads are an Alawite, uh, well, Alawite crime family, really, but uh, they're Shia Alawites, and they have been able to cling to power with substantial help from the Russians, uh, among others, uh, the Russians, the uh, Iranians, uh, Hezbollah, so uh, all fighting against this. Is, this is a Shia-Sunni fight that's going on in Syria, in the Syrian civil war. So Russia has said now in response to the shoot, remember, so now the, the way we've been operating for a while, for, well, quite a while, given how long the, uh, our U.S. involvement with the air campaign has been is that we're not going after uh, we're not going after the Syrian regime. We're only going after the Islamic State in uh, Syria and also in Iraq. Now, in the case of Iraq, the government there, the central government, is an ally, the U.S. ally. And so, uh, as we are currently in the closing phases in Iraq of the campaign to take Mosul, the largest uh, Sunni Arab majority city in Iraq, although it's not really clear what the demographics of the city are anymore because it's been through so much. Uh, so many people have left and fled and been killed. Uh, but that, the old city of Mosul on the west side of the Tigris River is, uh, ISIS is losing it now, uh, street by street, house by house to Iraqi forces, and there's been U.S. support for them. In the case of Syria, we've been backing Kurdish rebels against a against the Islamic State, we have not been taking the fight to the Assad regime. In fact, regime change hasn't really been a, it hasn't been a military policy for us in Syria. We've been saying that Assad must go, or Obama said that Assad must go, but we haven't put any military uh, assets into that as part of the air campaign. Or you know, we're, we're not blowing up Assad's stuff. We have not been doing that. We're, we're not going after Assad, we're going after the Islamic State. But the country is, roughly speaking, bisected between regime control and non-regime control. Actually, geographically, it's the regime looks like it doesn't have very much of the country. But the closer you are to the Mediterranean, to the coast, which is further west, that's where you have the major cities and a, and a, a majority of the uh, Syrian population. So you have you know, Damascus and uh, Aleppo, Homs, Hama. Now, Aleppo has been the scene of a tremendous amount of fierce fighting for a long time, um, but the Syrian regime controls um, areas that are more dense in terms of population. So once you get out further east towards Iraq and Syria, it's just it's a lot of it is desert. There's really nothing there. I mean, there are villages and, and some small cities scattered here or there. But uh, and that's where that's when you get out towards Raqqa and, and greater degree of. Well, that's where you have ISIS control, though ISIS is losing its control there. So he, here's the discussion we have to have. Um, what is the U.S. policy objective in Syria right now? Not clear. Sure, it's to defeat the Islamic State, and that is happening. Uh, it is to take away all territory, including Raqqa, the Islamic State's capital city, 
to take away all territory currently uh, held by ISIS. But what lengths are we willing to go to in order to achieve that? Meaning, what assets will we deploy? What risks will we take? What losses? And also, what will be our responsibility after the fact? You see, the fight against ISIS, as I said, in Iraq, you've got the central government, which has its own problems, and there's sectarianism in Iraq as well. You've got Sunni and Shia and Kurd in Iraq. And, uh, but there is a, there is a, a government in Baghdad that, that at least it is, it is functional. It is elected, and, and they are an ally, and we can work with them. And we have some levers, and we have some leverage. And in Syria, we dislike the Assad regime and obviously abhor ISIS. So what does that leave us with? And we, the uh, Syrian government, again, Assad government, um, doesn't want to have a takeover of its territory, obviously wants to take all of its territory back. We can't use a Kurdish, a group uh, that's mostly Kurdish militia to take back, uh, to, to take on the Assad regime. And they don't want to do that. And the Turks, our NATO allies up in the north, they don't want to see uh, the Kurds continue to uh, hold this territory and expand their footprint even more in terms of control in Syria and perhaps carve out a little Kurdistan in northern Syria for themselves, hugging the Turkish border. That, that has political uh, ramifications in Turkey that are problematic. I mean, this is a mess, right? You're seeing it, it's a big mess. And while we're all pleased, understandably so, that ISIS is losing ground and losing territory, uh, we need to think about the steps that come next. And this is where you see the possibility of a what is a regional civil war with uh, Sunni Shia uh, overtones, uh, with Sunni Shia uh, dem uh, dynamics playing out in the context of a Syrian conflict, right? Because you've got the Iranian hand involved, you've got you know, Hezbollah coming across from Lebanon, uh, you have support for ISIS from uh, Sunni Arabs in Gulf states who are you know, either showing up to fight or people are showing up from all over the world to, uh, to fight with the Islamic State, at least they were. So you have outside actors, and, and Syria is a proxy war of all these different outside actors, as well as a an internal conflict for control with the Assad regime. So there's different layers. But the layer that gets everybody really scared, understandably so, is what happens if it turns into Russian planes versus American planes. Uh, this is how uh, the Russian defense ministry responded to the shootdown of, remember, it's a Syrian aircraft, but this is a crowded airspace now. Syria is not a very big country. A lot of planes flying sorties here and there. Um, and we have to start looking at what will be or what are the chances for not just escalation, but miscalculation that leads to escalation, meaning uh, as we push further, even if our forces, whether on the ground or in the air, you know, the, the militias we're working with, and remember there are U.S. embeds in the region as well. I mean, there's, there's very real concern here for what's going to happen um, just in terms of the possibility of a, of a mistake, uh, so a miscalculation on the ground or in the air, um, that could lead to an escalation or just a, a decision 
by the Assad regime or uh, the Russians? And, and what would they what would be our response to that? Here, here's what Russia has said. Any aircraft, including planes and drones belonging to the international coalition operating west of the river Euphrates will be tracked by Russian anti-aircraft forces in the sky and on the ground and treated as targets. Now, the Russian foreign ministry did not say that it would shoot down, uh, that it would shoot down coalition or U.S. planes. Um, and there's been, of course, U.S. efforts to deconflict in, in the past. Uh, so, you know, there have been, there's been an understanding that, look, Russia is providing not all of it, but a, an air force component, providing an air force to Assad that he desperately needed and has been very useful, uh, for the Assad regime. And it has been pretty indiscriminate in its bombing of Syrian civilians as well. And we have been providing air cover, well, strikes against the Islamic State and now air cover for troops on the ground, these, uh, these, YP, these uh, militias, these Kurdish militias. But we're looking at what could happen tomorrow or next week, which is important, right? What would be our response if, if, a, if the Syrian regime, let's say, used a surface-to-air missile, missile and uh, shot down a U.S. plane? Are we at war with Syria, meaning the Syrian government, meaning the Assad regime? You see, there's there's two uh, there's two phases of this conflict that that I, I don't know who in our government has thought through, but I haven't heard from them yet. Who will control once we destroy the Islamic State? Um, who will control the areas currently in Islamic State hands? We're going to get together some. Some group of, uh, you know, rebels and Syrians and Kurds and come up with something. I'm sure there's some idea, but that's going to be complicated. By the way, it's not like you're going to defeat ISIS and it's eradicated and it's gone. There will be a long-term insurgency uh, operations, I'm willing to bet, meaning that there will be suicide bombings and attacks and all the stuff you've seen in Iraq. You will see in Syria once ISIS is gone. Because some of its fighters will melt into the general population and will continue on their, their struggle for the Islamic State. That's, that's likely to happen. So who will be in charge of that? Do we, are, are we willing to defend that area um, of what is currently ISIS-stan, if you will, once we've taken it or once our, our allies and our proxies on the ground have taken it? Are we going to defend them against the Assad regime? What do we do when the Assad regime says, well, that's our, that's thanks, that's our territory. And we're glad that you took care of the terrorists. Now we'd like it back. We're going to say no? Okay, well, are, how much are we willing to enforce that? If Assad forces move on Kurdish uh, militia on the ground in Syria, are, are we going to go direct against Assad's military? That's obviously... In escalation, that would be a major concern. And then beyond that, let's just assume for some, for whatever, just for the purposes of our discussion here, let's assume that we defeat ISIS. We have cobbled together some coalition on the ground of different, you know, tribal entities, Kurds, Syrians who have a have a transitional government in place. 
have, have some sort of temporary political entity that will be providing governance. We tell the Assad regime, uh, sorry, this is no longer your country. Um, and then beyond that, Assad is uh, deposed or overthrown in a coup, which I, I think would be you know, highly, um, highly unlikely or you know, who knows at this point. I don't know. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Let's say that that Assad goes, whether by his own, which I don't think he ever, I don't think he'll ever step down. Okay, but let's say someone takes, gets rid of Assad through some capacity. He either has to flee or they they get rid of him. Are we then going to preside over the rebuilding of Syria? That that's really what this all comes down to. Because when you have a force that's on the ground that you're providing air cover to, it's it's kind of like you've taken control of a sovereign part of a sovereign country or what was formerly a sovereign country at least who do we restore this to or who, who do we hand it over to and if we're going to tell Assad that this is no longer part of what had been recognized remember Syria has been recognized as a country in the international community for a long time it's uh, there, there was no U.N. process to take this area away from Assad. We've been thinking, oh, Assad, is, he's terrible. He gasses his own people, and this is all true, and it's horrific, and he's a brutal dictator. But is, we're, is it no longer his country? Meaning, do we tell him that, and are we willing to get rid of him? Or There are no real answers to these questions, my friends. I, I raise this all because he, here's what we, we don't want to have happen. We don't want a situation where we are in the middle of what is a slow-moving stealth invasion of another country that we don't really want to commit to, but we find ourselves in the middle of, and there's no plan for a, a, a governance, no plan for an occupation, no will to do it. We don't want to send troops there. I mean, I, I, I don't want the Trump administration sending U.S. soldiers to uh, walk the streets of Raqqa, but... Now we've got to ask the question, okay, when ISIS is gone, who's going to walk the streets of Raqqa? Or who's going to man the checkpoints outside of it? Who's going to take it? These are things that we really need to spend some time as a country focused on. And Of course, the media just wants to talk about how they don't like Sean Spicer's press gaggles. I mentioned Iran before and its involvement in Syria. I should note that Iran uh, said on uh, Sunday, said yesterday, that it had launched missiles into eastern Syria targeting ISIS fighters in retaliation for the attacks that uh, hit Tehran on the 7th of June. So uh, I- Iran is, just, is, is now firing long-range missiles into, into Syria. So Iran is getting in on this, uh, you know, uh, getting in on this fight from from afar as as well as uh, up close um the the iranians are very involved but i, I want to also go back just just to note the iranians are, are firing missiles into syria this gives you a sense of how many different parties are involved in this and of course the uh the turks and the israelis are watching all this from across their borders just thinking oh gosh uh but the white house has said that it retains the right to self-defense in Syria. So there's an, a, uh, a war of words for right now between the U.S. and Russia. And I'm not a, a Russia, uh, I'm not a Russia conspiracy theorist. I'm not a, a Russia alarmist either. 
but it is a serious country with a lot of nuclear missiles and uh, advanced military machinery and guys who know how to fly planes. And this is a conflict that we this would be a conflict rather um, in Syria that could spin out of control very quickly if there was open hostilities in Syria between U.S. and Russian forces. And and who knows where it would stop, quite honestly. I, I don't. I mean, this is this gets into a, a very frightening place very quickly. Um, but you can start to see how if we if we have the Russians telling us that they may shoot down any plane that comes close enough uh, to their forces, what would the U.S. response be? And now we're forced to answer uh, how much we care about the future and fate of Syria. Um, where do we draw these lines? The possibility of great power conflict in Syria seems more real now than it ever has been in the past. So you have looming over all of this and, and this this mess, this disaster that is the Syrian civil war, uh, a half a million people killed, uh, a, a proxy war that pits Sunni against Shia, uh, the uh, Islamic, the rise of the Islamic State, as well as other uh, jihadist uh, terrorist entities inside of Syria, some of which I'm sure we'll learn a lot more about in the months ahead, um, because they have aspirations outside, they likely have aspirations outside their borders, I'd be willing to wager. Uh, and here we are now being told that the White House, or rather with the White House telling the Russians, you know, we will defend ours, and the Russians saying, well, we'll defend ours too. And who is going to blink on this one? Um, do, the, do the Russians think that they could test this administration early on? What if they shoot down a plane and say, sorry, it was an accident? What if they shoot down two? They say, it's crowded. It's, it's hard to know. We didn't mean to. Let's not let things get out of hand. Commander-in-Chief President Trump is going to have his hands full with this problem um, because the Obama administration left a lot of the hardest stuff uh, with regard to Syria for the next administration. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Pretty amazing that despite everything going on in the world and and here at at home, uh, terrorist attacks, possibility of a great power escalation in Syria, um, the narrowly averted mass assassination of U.S. congressmen last week, uh, given everything that's in the news cycle, the press's focus on the press and the access that uh, elite media uh, has and or, or doesn't have and, and their favorite hobby at this point, which is just running with unproven, unsourced, unmerited Russia allegations, uh, that doesn't stop. They, they have not given up. Uh, given up on that. I, I know Kellyanne Conway over the weekend uh, talked a bit about how I, can we just if we're going to hear all the leaks, which is which are ongoing about the 
the probe and oh, this person's under investigation. That I, I see now. There's some stuff about Flynn, and you have, uh, you know, m- members of one committee or another saying that Flynn didn't disclose what he needed to disclose. We have all this information, and the information that comes out of the bureaucracy is disparaging. Um, if we're going to get disparaging information, how about the stuff that is the justification for all of this, which would be information about collusion, information about what are they what are they investigating? Wouldn't that be something that we should all just know? Can't we be told what they're investigating at this point? Uh, I know I know what they're theoretically investigating, but I mean the the information. Uh, you have some who are willing to to say that uh, they think there's evidence of collusion, but they won't ever share it with us, and it never gets leaked to the press. Do you think there's anything that would make the New York Times, the Washington Post happier? Is there anything you can think of in the in the entire world, really, that would get them more excited than running with a story that finally puts some uh, puts some some meat on the bone, so to speak, of the Russia collusion allegations? I, I do believe that they might actually crack champagne and spray it around the newsrooms. It would be the happiest day in many of those journalists' lives, certainly since Obama got elected, and maybe ever. I don't know. Since the Watergate era, they would think it was the, the greatest moment of journalism. I had to laugh. I tweeted out over the weekend, and I tried to stay off you know, I tried to stay off Twitter because uh, I was at a wedding, and I was in Boston having a, a lovely time. And I, Like I said, I went to college in in Massachusetts, and I never really spent much time in Boston, and uh, great town. Um, but I saw on CNN in my hotel, and I just couldn't help it. Uh, I saw that they they had a, a question at the bottom of the screen, is the press secretly rooting for Trump's impeachment? That was the question they were asking on their Sunday show. And I just had to tweet out, it's not a secret, okay? We, we all know they're rooting for, they're rooting for Trump's impeachment. And by they, I mean 90% of the media. I mean media based in New York, D.C., L.A., that is responsible for a, a huge percentage of the readership of uh, newspapers online and uh, the news bureaus, both TV and print, that determine the national news narrative on a daily basis. Um, so we get all this information, like I said, that's bad uh, because they want it to be bad because that's what they run with. And and even if they have to correct it in a few days, um, they will do it because it serves the purpose over the short term. Right. So when they tell us that uh, the Comey testimony will be one thing and it turns out to be another. Well, it was worth telling us that it was going to that he was going to deny ever having told Trump, for example, that he was not under investigation. It was it was worth it to run that even though it hurts the news organization's credibility. It was worth it to them to run with that story. Okay. Um, As I've been saying all along, if there was more to this than just a witch hunt, a giant witch hunt, which is which I do believe is what we have. We are now uh, in the middle of with the Mueller probe and everything else. I do not think this is about restoring integrity. I do not think this is about the rule of law. This is the criminalization of politics. It is using process and bureaucracy as a weapon. Divorced from reason, bureaucratic processes are a terrifying thing, my friends. And honestly, law divorced from justice is a terrifying thing.
one of the worst in any society. And when you see just little bits of it here and there, you know, when you when you look at times that that politics have clearly been the driving force behind prosecutorial decisions. We should all be greatly concerned about it. I mentioned that there is this strange habit of very flimsy cases either investigated or brought uh, with with charges but at least at the investigative stage, even still flimsy for that, against prominent Republicans. Uh, And I don't, to this day, I'm surprised that this hasn't uh, caught on more, gotten more attention. When I filled in for Rush Limbaugh a few times, I I believe I mentioned at least once, if not twice, went into some detail about this. I mean, you had Governor Walker in Wisconsin, presidential candidate, by the way, with Democrat, power-mad prosecutors going after his people, trying to get to him. You had Chris Christie with the Bridgegate scandal. Federal prosecutors uh, searching, searching, searching. Finally got two Christie lieutenants, but they wanted Christie. He didn't, to this day, no reason to believe, no evidence he did anything wrong whatsoever. But they wanted Christie. Rick Perry in Texas. You had uh, people trying to bring charges against him there for exercising the prerogatives of his office as governor. Uh, the McDonald case, which I have to, I was one of the early uh, one of the early critics of this. I had some fellow conservatives giving me a hard time because I was saying, look, the guy took like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in gifts and they want to send him to federal prison for 11 years. Everybody, they wanted to send his wife to prison, too. She's not even a public official. How can she be guilty of public corruption? Supreme Court, at least in part, agreed with me. That should tell you something. The state of Virginia did not bring charges against former Governor Bob McDonald, but the federal government did. And you just you just go down the list and you see all of these questionable uh, prosecutions of Republican officials or at least investigations of Republican officials. Um, and then, of course, the the most prominent under the Bush administration of the whole uh, Fitzgerald uh, Le- leak investigation, which was just a witch hunt on steroids. So we've seen this play out before, and, and now we're in the same place. And I at least can tell you all that I'm pleased that I've been consistent here. You know, it, it would have been nice. I understand it. You know, conservatives, here's our problem. You, you see, the, the left likes to stand up. And they like to say, oh, look at how great I am. And when they mean it, they're they're always uh, signaling their virtue. They're always virtue signaling at someone else's expense. Whereas sometimes with conservatives, we look at them and see see how much we play by the rules. See See how good we are. And the other side is just doing whatever they have to do. You know, the other side is changing the scoreboard behind our back or saying, see, we, we play by the rules. Now, I'm not saying that means you abandon the rules, and I'm going to give you my sense of the whole Shakespeare interruption controversy in the next hour. Here's The short version is I don't think that people should be doing that. I, I don't think that we want to start engaging in shouting down speech the way the left shouts on speech at all. In fact, I, I think it's a horrible idea. Uh, and I, I, I repudiate it. I do not think it is in the least bit conservative, and it is not uh, anything that Republicans should applaud. Um, but you will notice that uh, when the special counsel, bring this all now back to Mueller, I know we've gone on a little bit of a windy road here. 
you'll notice that with Mueller, there was a, an immediate or with the, the designation of a special counsel. There were some were saying, oh, see, now this this is what we need. We, we need the truth that will come from this investigation. The country needs this to finally get past this. That could be true, but it won't be true because the purpose of this is not to get past anything. The purpose of the investigation is the investigation. The purpose of the investigation is to have a source for either leaks or speculations about what's going on in this investigation that are meant to damage the administration, that will damage the administration, clearly have already. I think we can all agree that this has been harmful to uh, President Trump and his agenda. And with that, therefore, all the benefits that I've been hoping they'll be able to bring to the American people. Tax reform would be a good thing. I know all these progressive Democrats like to cry about, oh, it's so wrong, and the millionaires and the billionaires. Millionaires and billionaires, tax cuts. Bernie Sanders, three houses, but he's a socialist. They all like to cry about this, but the truth is it would be uh, great to have a corporate tax cut for a lot of businesses, a lot of hiring, a lot of people would benefit from that. Um, but they don't want to, they don't look at it that way, right? It's just all, it's all in against Trump. We know that. That's nothing new. We hit that day in and day out. You're already, you're already well aware of that. But I mean, here we go. I'm just looking at the, the status of this investigation, the Mueller, the Mueller Russia probe. We don't even have a good name for it because it's so wide ranging. It's so broad. It covers so much territory. And yet we don't even know what it's doing. The special counsel assigned to rush to look at Russian meddling in the election. All right. We've already been told that that Russia, that Russian hackers broke into some email accounts and released some emails to uh, make Hillary look bad. We've been told this for months. That's nothing new. We're going to be told again, more definitive. I thought it was definitive the first time. Now we're going to be told it more definitively. We've got the possibility of U.S. planes and Russian planes going missile to missile any day now. And we are worried about the being told told once again about the hacking. I'm not saying that that wasn't a problem, but what, what do we really plan to do about it? Already have sanctions on Russia have very frosty relations with Russia, not quite a Cold War status, but not good. We don't even have a name for this investigation. It's just ongoing. Going to be looking at any number of things. Someone's going to get tripped up by it. That's my uh, that's my prognostication here. That's my estimate. Someone's going to get tripped up, and, and Democrats will feel really good about themselves. And they'll say, see, we got we got someone. And they won't think about what that might mean for that individual who maybe didn't do anything really particularly wrong at all, but is just caught up in this partisan warfare, is just snagged in the grinding machinery of a special counsel probe that is designed to be uh, frightening and relentless and give uh, a lot of leverage to the prosecution. You do not want to be, and my friends who have been on the federal prosecutorial side, are the first to admit this, although they don't always like to talk about it openly. You don't want to be the target of a federal investigation because you lose no matter what. There, there's, there's, no, there's no happy ending for you. you know, it's not at the end of like, you know what, it turns out you're a great patriot and a wonderful American, and we're so sorry about this, and here's a check for a million dollars. No. In fact, it's usually the opposite. Even if they can't bring charges, there might be, there'll be some lingering cloud over you, and who knows how much money you've spent defending yourself. So that's why when I see things like this from a Politico saying that Representative Elijah Cummings 
sharing that Michael Flynn, this is a uh, this is just in the last hour. Michael Flynn didn't disclose foreign contacts on security clearance form. Uh, I think they believe that they're going to be able to get Flynn on something. And those of us who uh, understand the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the rules and regulations around uh, intelligence and military work can tell you that, you know, if they want to go through all your stuff and find something, they'll find something pretty much. They'll they'll find a a place somewhere that you you didn't check what you needed to check. Or, I mean they'll they'll get you if they want to get you. And with Flynn, it's really starting to look like they're trying to get him. Um, so we can get like I said a leak about Flynn, but we can't get anything more substantive than that. I mean Kellyanne Conway mentioned that she was on the show or she was on, rather making the rounds over the weekend, and here's what she said. Uh, clip nine, play it. Well, let's review what he's already said about it that there's no obstruction of justice, he's not under investigation, there's no collusion, it's a witch hunt. He's made very clear that we've had months and months and months of investigation on top of the FBI, several House and Senate committees investigating the same thing. And you have got even, you've got people even that have not always been sympathetic towards President like Trump. Like David Brooks of the New York Times. Openly questioning where will this lead us. And I want to say something else. We're starting to waste tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money on this endeavor. Mm -hmm. And if there's something there, let's hear about it. The president has said, let the investigation go forward. Does anyone really doubt that if there was a piece of damning information that would make all of this seem like it was legitimate, that would make all of the questions and everything around surrounding this Trump investigation all of a sudden seem very legitimate to to anyone with an an open mind and and a reasonable point of view? Anyone doubt that we would know it already? getting uh, more uncomfortable with this whole deal, uh, thinking that maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. And I'm bothered by the lack of emerging evidence about underlying the underlying crime, that there was actually collusion or coordination between the Trump White House. And so what's happened is we've surrounded the president with this legal minefield, and Donald Trump being Donald Trump steps all over the legal minefield and blows him up six ways from Sunday, but it's become an investigation about itself. And, you know, I've lived through Whitewater. I've lived through a lot of these. And there's a lot of shady behavior that don't rise to the Watergate level. And I'm just afraid we're being swallowed up by the politics of scandal when there's less and less evidence that they actually colluded. Maybe that'll come out, but so far it hasn't. You don't say, David Brooks of the New York Times. No way. Really? Less evidence of collusion? Maybe they shouldn't get ahead of themselves on this? Yeah. Some of us have been saying this for a while. Quite a while. Felix in Pennsylvania, what say you, sir? Hey, Buck. Okay, I got a question. Doesn't uh, President Trump have the power to pardon anyone involved in this whole mess before he leaves office, even if they aren't indicted? Of course. The presidential pardon power is almost absolute. I mean, if I was President Trump, I would I would want to cover my people, you know, before I left anyone that could possibly be caught up, you know, in this catch 22. Um, but now understand this, Felix. Have... Let, let's say I, I don't want to interrupt you, but this is an important point. Let's say that Flynn gets jammed up with, you know, he didn't disclose something on the form or whatever. And then Trump decides to uh, to pardon him. Uh, keep in mind that that would be considered uh, a, a huge political victory for the left anyway. Right. So so they're they're happy 
they'd rather Flynn, I'm sure, go to prison if they could. A guy who's a, a general of service country honorably for decades. They'd rather have his family visiting him in like the waiting room of a federal correctional facility. I mean, when you really think about it, you understand how like evil and nasty these people are over like a, a, the equivalent of a clerical error. But they'll take right. the political win. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even if he does it when he leaves office, at the very least. But, I mean, you know, these people do need to be protected because this is a witch hunt. But the other question that I have is this. How can we, the people, encourage an investigation into the real criminals, the Clintons, the Loretta Lynches, you know, uh, Comey, and all these people with all these other things that actually they're accusing Trump of doing but what they did? You know, the, the whole uh, Russia uranium and uh, the Clinton Foundation and Hillary Clinton hid the reason I don't know why, why the DOJ shouldn't asp- I mean I don't know why the DOJ shouldn't appoint a special counsel to look into the handling of the Hillary investigation. I mean, you had Comey say openly that it was uh that it looked terrible and that it was ter- that he had to step in and take extreme measures and all this other stuff. And that was Comey. So uh, what, what, what why can, not have what, a, what a special what can I'm sorry? we the people do? You know, to, what can we the people do to encourage us? I mean, I don't uh, know, man. We got to hit a break, though. Good to talk to you, my friend. Team, we'll be right back. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. We're told that the repeal and replacement of Obamacare is central to the Republican agenda, and that certainly uh, seems to be the case, and I'll get into the why of that in just a moment, but that also then takes us to why the Democrats seem to be willing to go, oh, in a more Alinskyite path, um, including the abuse of uh, unanimous consent uh, procedures on the Senate floor. This is now Chuck Schumer leading the Democrat Senate resistance, saying that they plan to uh, halt Senate business as much as they can as a protest against the Republicans and their efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare. So the plan is that tonight Democrats are going to start objecting to all unanimous consent requests in the Senate. They plan to control the floor of the chamber Monday night and try to force the House pass health care bill to committee in a bid to further delay it. Uh, just unanimous consent, those of you are wondering, is it's a Senate procedural issue uh, where the if a senator can ask for something and if no senator objects then the senate will per, will allow it this is from the senate from senate.gov okay a senator may request unanimous consent on the floor to set aside a specified rule of procedure so as to expedite proceedings if no senator objects the senate permits the action but if any one senator objects the request is rejected unanimous consent requests with only immediate effects are routinely granted but ones affecting the floor schedule, the conditions of considering a bill or other business, or the rights of other senators are normally not offered, or a floor leader will object to it until all senators concerned have an opportunity to inform the leaders that they find it acceptable. So when they say they're going to object to all the unanimous consent, it just means they're going to literally move things as slowly as they possibly can. Uh, At what point does this just become too absurd and too ridiculous? I don't know. 
I'm not sure that for Chuck Schumer there is such a thing in his Senate duties. You know, theoretically, you could, for example, uh, have, you know, senators who just decide that they're going to speak so slowly. I mean, you know, you, you get I know people say, oh, Buck, what about the filibuster? Well, there there's, there are debates about the filibuster as a procedure. It can only be used for certain things. Now they're really just trying to use parliamentary procedure tricks to slow things down as a form of protest. I mean, this is how how little they've really got to go with here, uh, because they say the Republicans are drafting this bill in secret and they're ashamed of it, plain and simple, according to Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Um, what I mean by Alinsky, by the way, is, you know, one of the Alinsky tactics uh, that's described in his book, Rules for Radicals, is if you really want to have a protest, just go into a public facility where there are where, where people are coming and going in large numbers and uh, and just stay in all the restroom stalls and don't allow anyone to use the bathrooms. That'll get everyone's attention. Well, yeah, OK, that's true, but it's a pretty nasty thing to do. Uh, Alinsky in, in Rules for Radicals talks about that tactic specifically. So it's it's not in keeping with any sense of fair play or ethics, right? It's just this is what we're going to do. And that's the same thing that, uh, I mean, because you're allowed to use the restroom, right? Just, you can take as much time as you want. So the senators are going to just slow things down as much as they can just just to do so. That's what it seems to me the plan is here um, because they can't find the votes they need. Um, they are abusing the trust of the American people that the Senate will do something. I, I should also just throw in here that I I remember, I, I remember that there was a lot of talk, and, and I also recall that it got support in the media, a lot of talk about how the Republicans, when President Obama was the president, were so obstructionist. Oh, they're so obstruct. Well, they're always obstructing. Oh, they're just, they're, you know, you'd have Chuck Schumer the Republicans with their obstruction. I mean, you know, the whole thing. You'd hear about it all the time. You know, Harry Reid uh, talking about the obstructionist Republicans. In fact, any time the Democrats didn't want to do something or couldn't get something they wanted, one or the other, they there was a very good chance that they were just going to blame it on obstructionist Republicans. And that became the key talking point. You know, why didn't Obama do anything on uh, any number of fronts in the first two years in office. Why didn't the Democrats in the Senate pass or Democrats rather in Congress do uh, anything on climate or anything on um, immigration? Right. Oh, obstructionist. Republicans are obstructionists. That's what we would hear. So obstruction was bad under Obama. How much do you think that that will change now that the Democrats are the ones doing the obstruction? Remember, o Obama would say, and if you want to talk about eroding the checks and balances that are supposed to be so central to our the functioning of our government and, and are so central to it. But if you want to talk about a, a threat to that, how about a president who has the full uh, the full support of our you know fourth estate, fifth columnist media? A president who says that he will go he will go around Congress because they will not act. You remember that? They will not act. I'm going to go around them. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get it done. Put on the phone. Obama would say that, and the press was either complicit and cheering him along or didn't raise much of a protest about it. Of course, it's the, it's the Congress's 
uh, prerogative to not act. They don't have to, which, by the way, was just another way of saying not doing what President Obama wanted them to do. It was completely allowable for them to not act. But the president didn't think so. So he would take it upon himself to do executive orders. But so, you know, you had a president who could get away, at least in terms of the way it was depicted in the media, could get away with uh, increasingly unilateral and quasi-dictatorial actions as the president, as the head of the executive branch of government, and would openly talk about how, you know, so what if Congress, who who would talk about usurping congressional prerogative, i.e. taking Congress's power into his hands. Obama would do that. He wouldn't just do it. He would talk about it and, and brag about it openly. You know, remember, pen and a phone, the whole thing. He can just get it done himself because Congress won't act. And he would and he would browbeat the Congress. And this was always, oh, well, Congress won't go along with me. And we were treated to a, a steady stream of outraged editorials from the media about how, oh, my gosh, obstruction is so is so ugly and so vile. And why are they doing all this obstruction? The American people deserve more. They deserve better. I don't think you're going to hear a lot about a lot of that with the Democrats doing obstruction now. I don't think you're going to hear much of that at all. But I don't want to just focus on the Democrats here with Obamacare because we, we got we got problems on our side. We do have problems on our side. When it comes to all this, um, we have Representative Duncan Hunter, uh, who is speaking at a forum, I believe, out in California in this one, who was saying that uh, if you want to see what the problem is, you got to go deal with the, You got to look at the Senate. Look at what's going on with Republicans in the Senate right now. Play clip 11. Every senator has their own plan. That's that's a problem. In the House, we have to get 218 votes, so we have to work together. In the Senate, you probably had 50 senators, each with their own health care plan, 50 Republican senators, each with their own tax plan. They And they all have to, they, they take so long to do stuff. You know, they're on a six-year <laughs> election cycle. They all want to be president. They all want to be famous. They don't want to lose their uh, seats. So the House is going to keep passing stuff. We're going to get stuff done. It's the, and, and Trump really needs to, to go after those Republican senators in those states that he won. Quit trying to be friends. Go after the uh, Senate and let the American people know where the problem is. He's saying the problems in the Senate. I have to I have to say I agree. Now, there are problems with the House bill. Um, uh, there are problems with the House bill right now uh, as it stands. Um, but at least they did something. And I, I think that the largest impetus for them to do something was just that. At least we did something. Um, but the Senate is doing its own bill. And I here's what what I actually reject at some level. I, I think it's true what what Hunter says here, Representative Hunter says here about uh, how the problems with the Senate and that they are moving very slowly. And he also said in remarks uh, recently that this is central that healthcare has to happen because then taxes can happen, and then there's the um, then there's the political momentum to push even further on other areas of the Trump agenda. Okay, fine. But this is not just a process issue, right? Democrats are trying to use process to slow down Republicans. That's not new. It's not surprising. But, of course, you will see a double standard in how that's covered by the media. Fine. Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, Republicans do not really agree on what the repeal and replace bill should be. In the Senate, where you have Republicans who won't come out and say it this way, but when it really, when push comes to shove, 
they like some aspects of Obamacare. In fact, and here's the dirty little secret of it all, they like some of the parts of Obamacare that they've probably been saying in order to get elected for a while, maybe even for uh, many years now since Obamacare's passage, they've probably been saying was really bad, but, you know, like the Medicaid expansion. But now they're all like, well, I don't really think I want to give that up. Or pre-existing condition coverage that requires there to be a cost-shifting structure in place. Whether the cost-shifting occurs through the individual mandate or through tax credits doesn't really change the fact that it's still taxpayers subsidizing people in a pool that is not based on actual risk, and therefore it is not insurance, but rather it is subsidized, cross-subsidized, state-mandated redistribution of wealth via health care. That's what's really going on. The complexity becomes a refuge for these scoundrels to pretend that they want one thing when they really want another. Right? The, the complexity of the repeal bill uh, is a place where the Senate can essentially find leeway, or I should say Republican members of the Senate can find leeway to not really tell you what they want and what they don't want. Because they've gotten the entire conservative base And most of the Republican Party all riled up about how Obamacare is terrible for uh, is terrible for liberty, is unconstitutional. The individual mandates destroying healthcare markets. Obamacare is failing. It's collapsing. Look at how how these different insurers are pulling out of states. Okay, okay, great. What are you going to do to make it better exactly? Well, we're going to do this other thing that's kind of like a little bit less like Obamacare, but you know, it's got a lot of mechanisms in place, and it's there's going to be cost savings and. Hmm? It's not really what what was promised. Uh, If the Republicans don't get this done and somebody asks the question come this fall in time for the midterm elections to get, I mean, the, the, the campaigns to get going for the midterms, if someone asks the question, why vote for Republicans? What really then becomes the answer just because they're not Democrats? Because they're not doing very much. And I think we should expect... A little bit more. I mean, I don't expect much from government. And with Obamacare, at least it could be government making health care less terrible because it's it's making it worse. Right? Obamacare is making things worse. So maybe they could do less of the making it worse. But they can't even manage that, it seems right now. All right, got to talk about these uh, Shakespeare disruptions in the park and the, the snowflake ism uh, coming from the right. Not OK with me. All right, so we've been talking about the uh, production of Shakespeare in the Park in New York City, which you may not have really heard about until recently because a lot of Shakespeare productions, and if you don't live in New York, this wouldn't really come up. But this one in particular is an adaptation of Julius Caesar, uh, and Caesar gets assassinated. And Caesar in this production is clearly played or somebody is is in the uh, dress and appearance of Donald Trump, which upsets people. Um, But that doesn't mean that I think that you should uh, 
engage in what we often criticize uh, from the right when the left does it, which is shouting down speech or, or trying to prevent speech or trying to prevent artistic expression that you disapprove of. Unless there's a legal basis to say that this is a threat against the president, and I don't think anyone really makes that claim, uh, or the, maybe, I don't know, I, mean, maybe, I, I, I haven't seen that. Uh, people just say they don't like this and that it's creating an environment they, they disapprove of. And you had uh, people over the weekend uh, shouting and disrupting. And here's what it sounded like during Shakespeare's Julius Caesar when uh, two people, uh, one jumped on stage, uh, Laura Loomis, and I'm sorry, Laura Loomer, rather, and another one uh, yelling from the crowd. Here's the here's what it sounded like. Play. Disrobe the images if you do find them necessary. So the guy's yelling in the in the crowd, uh, and someone jumped on the stage as well. Uh, Goebbels would be proud, of course. Goebbels, being the uh, propaganda minister of the Nazi regime, quite a uh, quite a comparison to make. Um, you had uh, Jack Posobiec, I think is his name. Making sure I get this right here. Uh, who was as well in the crowd? Um, and people yell, and he, you, you're inciting terrorists. The blood of Steve, I'm sorry, the protester later identified himself online where he posted the video as Jack Posobiec, who wrote a book called Citizens for Trump. I think we reached out to Jack to see if he'd come on the show. He did not, uh, yet at least. But he's welcome to come on and explain why he thinks this is a, uh, a good idea or why he thinks he's justified in doing this. Um, he yelled, you are inciting terrorists. The blood of Steve Scalise is on your hands. And then he was led away by security guards, according to Reuters here. Um, look, I I believe in more speech, not less. And I think that it's this, this is unhelpful to the cause of uh, of liberty. I, I understand that there are those with very good faith objections to a depiction of the president like this in public. Uh, and I share those objections. I mean, I think what they're doing with Trump is is on, on, on that stage or in that stand in of Trump as Julius Caesar is disgusting and it's disgraceful. But I, I also think that unless you're going to make the case that you think this is incitement to violence against the president on a criminal level. Because remember, not all speech is protected, right? You can't make verbal threats against the president, for example, say, oh, I have a First Amendment right. No, you can't do that. Uh, but if you're just going to say, no, this is so heinous that I object. Uh, and I don't I don't I'm sorry. Objecting is objecting is fine. But this is so heinous that I will stop it. Uh, n- now, this is where we get into the heckler's veto. Uh, now, this is where we see that the, the left does this to college campus speakers. The left does this. They they draw lines on what is too offensive, right? And we're not talking about the a legality issue here of an imminent th- threat or incitement to mob violence or something like that. We're talking about just th- think it's really gross, think it's really bad. And uh, I share those concerns here, I think. And I think it's, it is disgraceful, uh, to be sure. But beyond that, we don't want to be in the same game that the left is in. You know, this let's uh, 
fight fire with fire is not a good idea when the fire is consuming the very freedoms that we rely on um, and that are a, a foundational element of our society, right? I, I can't condone uh, a, a veto over expression or speech just based on the fact that people don't like it. So I, I disagree with what these activists did here. I, I disagree with it. And if I were in that crowd and saw them do this, I would be very displeased. Now, it's not the it's not a it's not a huge issue. It's not the end of the world. Nobody was harmed here or anything. But uh, I, I think that this sends the wrong message. I think this is unhelpful to the cause of uh, conservatism. I think it's unhelpful for the Trump administration as well. Let's let the left be the crybabies. Let's let them be the ones that always shout down, always scream. Oh, we can't be exposed to ideas and images of a political nature or. Uh, that we don't like we we, we can't uh we can't be uh trusted with information that might be a little damaging to our our sense of ourselves or whatever the case may be we'll leave that to the left and i think that we should do that i think that this disruption of shakespeare was a mistake we'll be back with more team stay with me Welcome back, everybody. We've got our friend Kevin Williamson on the line. He is roving correspondent for National Review. You can check out his latest at nationalreview.com. Kevin, thanks so much for making the time. Hey, Buck. So, Kevin, uh, there were some folks who thought it was a a good idea. In fact, uh, they thought they were uh, pr- promoting, I, I don't know what values particularly, but they were um, speaking out against the Trump Uh, Shakespeare in the Park, Julius Caesar production, and they jumped on the stage. Now, you're somebody who actually appreciates the theater a lot. I'm I'm assuming you would not have appreciated what happened over the weekend twice. No, this is one of those uh, Iran-Iraq war situations. I'm just, uh, I wish everybody could lose, and I suppose everyone did, so maybe that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, so these idiots uh, went and disrupted uh, Shakespeare in the Park performance of Julius Caesar, uh, because the guy playing Caesar is dressed like Trump, and it's, you know, this silly commentary on American politics, yada, yada, yada. So this is pretty bad behavior and uh, juvenile. And actually, the lady, what is her name, Laura Loomis, she actually was complaining not too long ago when the cast of Hamilton was lecturing Mike Pence after the show, can't we just all sit and enjoy a play? Well, apparently we can't all sit and enjoy a play. But on the other hand, the idea of Shakespeare in the park being interrupted by Political speeches doesn't really move me too much because I was there a couple of years ago for a production of The Winner's Tale, which began with the campaign speech by Bill de Blasio. And then I kid you not, in the middle of the third act, the play came to a screeching halt. And of all people, Chuck Schumer wanders onto the stage, gives a political speech, says vote Democrat, walks off, and they're Muppets. So if you don't actually spend much time in New York and know how bad New York theater is, particularly Shakespeare in the park. It's maybe hard to appreciate, but it's trash. It's, uh, it's one of the worst Shakespeare uh, festivals in the country, if not in the world. It has incredibly low artistic standards. It's already been politicized and it's embarrassing to start with. So it's hard for me to get too excited one way or the other about it. I mean, yeah, I hate the uh, rudeness of interrupting a performance, but it's crap to start with. But isn't it fair to say that this is also you, you could put this, uh, broadly speaking, under the definition of of snowflakeism? I mean, I, I, look, I, well, yeah, I think that it's, it's exactly I think it's like in really poor taste. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. OK, it's exactly like the stuff on the college campuses where if Ann Coulter tries to talk or Milo Yiannopoulos tries to talk or someone else or I try to talk, I protested at Yale. 
um, that they will interrupt and do what they can do to stop that from happening rather than say hold a sign outside or write a letter afterward or do some simple thing to make their disagreement known. They will try to stop the thing from actually happening. And we're not talking here about, you know, someone stopping an act of violence. We're not talking about here, you know, about someone doing anything that's dramatic. They're talking about stopping a performance of a, of a Shakespeare play because they don't like the way it's being staged. So it's incredibly immature, and it's exactly what we're seeing from, as you put it, the snowflakes. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, concerned here that there are some conservatives that are, that are taking the we-need-to-fight-fire-with-fire position, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Water against the fire. Like, put the fire out, not, people, not fire with fire. Are, yeah, these people aren't conservatives, Buck. They're grifters. They're con artists who are looking for a career in uh, controversy, and this is how you make one. So, you know, it's good for some Twitter followers. It's good for some buzz on the Internet. Sean Hannity's going to have uh, that idiot woman on his show, I heard, and, uh, yeah, and the guy as well, I'm sure, at some point. So, yeah, it's a good way to make yourself some money and get some profile and get yourself a career as a controversialist, but they're not conservatives. They're, uh, I call them contrepreneurs. They're people who are using the conservative movement to make money and to avoid, you know, honest labor. There's far too much of that these days, I should note, but I guess that's a discussion we can get more into uh, another day. We're speaking to Kevin Williamson, everybody. He is roving correspondent at National Review. Uh, Kevin, I want you to tell us a bit about your piece on Planned Parenthood, which is coming up in National Review. Yeah, that's out in the current uh, print issue. Uh, the headline is A Century of Brutality. And it's, um, you know, there's really not much of an argument in this one. It's more or less just straight reporting about the history of Planned Parenthood, the ideas that uh, informed its founding, some things about the personalities. A lot of people know about Margaret Sanger, but some of the other people involved in the uh, early founding of Planned Parenthood were some, some pretty interesting and nasty characters as well. The eugenics mission of Planned Parenthood, of course, was not incidental to it. It was really very much fundamental to it, and in many ways remains so. Uh, we're still hearing the abortion debate informed by things like the guys from Freakonomics saying, well, it lowers the crime rate, or you know, the sort of... Um, that, that kind of dim feminist view of, well, what are you going to do to take care of all these poor children? It's better off that they never get born, that sort of thing. So it's tracing the origins of this kind of rhetoric and this kind of anti-humanistic thinking back to the beginning of Planned Parenthood and, and indeed past that to an extent. It's um, one of those arguments, by the way, Kevin, that depending on who makes it, it's acceptable or not acceptable, right? I mean, meaning the speaker specifically, uh, if you're a leftist, if you're a Democrat, you're allowed to talk about free economics. You're allowed to talk about the costs of unwanted children. But, you know, anybody else making these arguments, I think, would, would run into a lot of trouble very quickly because, as you said, there, there's a eugenics aspect to this. Yeah, I mean, it's a plainly eugenical argument. It always has been. And it remains that. Um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not too long ago, I mean, how many years back was it when she said, well, this was about, you know, not having too many populations we don't want too many of, as she put it. Or, right. You know, if, if you're not Ruth Bader Ginsburg and you say that, I think your career in anything is over. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Ron Weddington, who was a co-counsel in Roe, I guess he was married to Sarah Weddington at that time, um, you know, said the same thing to Bill Clinton. That we can start eliminating the undesirables, the poorly educated, the uh, unproductive, if we can just really ramp up uh, stuff, this, uh, you know, contraception and, uh, and abortion both. So this is not something that was just some... 19th century intellectual fad or some progressive era intellectual fad. It's something that was a very deep part of our thinking about what pathetically calls itself the uh, sexual revolution and still 
very much informs our thinking on it today. So that's what the piece is about. Do you think it's fair to say that the uh, the abortion lobby and the political movement behind uh, Planned Parenthood and, and the, these other groups uh, is is the single it's the one part of the Democratic Party that you cannot cross and still remain a Democrat in good standing more than anything else? Yeah, it's getting tough to you. I mean, there used to be a couple of pro-life Democrats around still, but now if you are one of those, you have to be really, really, really pretty quiet about it. And I'm not sure unless you kind of get grandfathered in, you could become a pro-life Democrat now. So if you were a pro-life Catholic who was otherwise with Bernie Sanders on every other issue, would they back you for a city council race in Mule Shoe, Texas? They probably wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. Um, we're speaking to Kevin Williamson, who is roving correspondent for National Review. One more for you, Kevin. Uh, the Congress has been talking about maybe not doing the recess or working through the recess. It, it, yeah. you, one, do you think is, – is there any chance they actually do that? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, they might actually do that. Who knows? Um, they like these kinds of dramatic gestures and things. I'm not so much concerned about how many days they work as I am about what they do during that time. So there are some things I might like to have them work through and get done, some things I would rather they went on vacation for. Um, you know, people complained about, people on our side complained about Barack Obama playing golf all the time. I was happy to see the man playing golf. In fact, I'd have raised money to get him a good golf club membership if I thought it would have kept him from causing trouble. And now people on the other side are complaining about Trump. You'd think they'd be happy that he's playing more golf because the more he's on the course, the less he's uh, causing mischief in Washington. So on balance, I kind of like the Texas legislature model, you know, where I live, where they only meet every other year for uh, whatever it is, 180 days. And then we send them home. I think Congress would probably be better off that way. But there are some things I'd like to see them do. So if they get together and get that done, then, you know, hallelujah. Kevin Williamson of National Review, everybody. Kevin, thank you so much. Good, uh, good to have you on. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Buck. Uh, team, we're going to hit a, a quick break coming up here, and we're going to close out the show. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back, team. With all this discussion out there of uh, snowflakeism and free speech and the uh, overheated political rhetoric that's that's going on, I, I thought it was worth taking a moment. To mention that there was a a pretty significant victory for free speech today, and this is at the heart, I I should note, free speech is at the heart of our free society. If you believe in liberty, if you're somebody who has a a belief in the free exchange of ideas, um, then you also have to be somebody who is in favor of protecting speech that is offensive, uh, speech that is difficult to hear, speech that uh, hurts feelings. And uh, this is, of course, nothing new to you. And yet there are all these different efforts underway uh, to try and not just socially prohibit this, which is ongoing. And and that's really a a different but related conversation, because here we're talking about the government saying, no, this speech is not allowed. This must be tailored in the most uh, narrow fashion possible. You, You have to always give the benefit of the doubt You have to always give more than just the tie to the runner, so to speak. You have to err well on the side of freedom of speech and not of censorship, in in my opinion. I I at least aspire, although I don't like free speech in movie theaters when people are talking during the movie, uh, but that's disruption, which is bad, like disruption of a Shakespeare play. I aspire to be a near free speech absolutist. I am not an absolutist, but I aspire to get as close to it uh, as possible. And the issue that I'm talking about here in this Supreme Court case 
deals with a band that is called The Slants. Now, uh, this is a band that is Oregon-based, and the lead singer uh, is Asian-American, and he viewed the the name of the band, which uh, could be a, well, is a reference to what is a racial slur uh, for Asian-Americans, um, and the the lead singer of this band had said that he believed that that the same way that other groups try to uh, reclaim speech that they find uh, or, or terms that they find to be disparaging and deeply offensive, uh, the same way that others have done that, he would like to do that. But the government, in this case under the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office auspices, had had said to them, no, sorry, we will not enforce a trademark of this name. Now, for eight years, this band, uh, I mean, who would have thought that you'd have this this Oregon, I guess, indie band taking a case all the way to the Supreme Court? But, you know, this is America. This happens. Uh, for eight years, this band has been fighting it out, trying to find a way to get to a uh, a resolution. And the resolution came today uh, because the... Court ruled eight zero. Remember, they have not yet uh, they have not yet gotten the uh, Gorsuch uh, seating done. So you know Gorsuch was was not a part of this case. So he he was not uh, voted. That's why it's eight instead of the nine. Um, but it took eight years for them to get here. And the oh, I, I didn't even tell you what the heart of the dispute was. Pardon me for a second while I backtrack. You're like Buck. Come on, get it together. U.S. Patent and Trademark Office was saying, look, your name, there's this 70-year-old law, and this 70-year-old law states that you can't have a, uh, a law or you can't have a registration or trademark that may, quote, disparage persons living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols. And, of course, trademark protection means that somebody, you know, if you are the lead singer of the slants, I believe actually the entire band is Asian-American. I know the lead singer is, but actually now I'm saying I believe the entire uh, band is Asian-American. So um, they want to sell T-shirts, for example, or, or any, anything bearing the name of their band. If somebody else starts doing that, they want them to stop. They need to have a trademark. And so they are put at a clear disadvantage in the marketplace i.e. they're not given their full rights as U.S. citizens to be able to register a patent here because there's a dispute over the name, a dispute over the propriety of the name. And what we've seen here is that the court, you see in a unanimous ruling, it's a pretty, um, you know, these days it feels at least like a pretty unusual thing. Uh, but in a free speech case, you see eight nothing and the First Amendment uh, going uh, strong, at least here, it is reassuring. Uh, it is something that is encouraging um, because I think that what we're hearing about and seeing on campuses and across the country with regard to hate speech and speech codes before that, I think I've mentioned on the show, I, I wrote my college thesis for political science uh, on campus speech codes just because I found them to be so obviously uh contra the mission of the campus of the University of uh, Higher Education, uh, but also I, I view them as legally problematic because these schools, even the private ones, rely on a whole lot of money for, uh, from the federal government 
And so to pretend that they don't have First Amendment obligations is, I think, deeply disingenuous. Well, here you had a, a federal office that was making determinations about what is acceptable and not acceptable speech for the purposes of, uh, of trademark. And again, eight, eight nothing um, in what is being called a, a substantial victory for the First Amendment. So, you know, I think uh, given the direction of so much of the, the news cycle these days where you have people that are fighting over uh, what is acceptable to say and not say, whether people should be fired for what they say. Uh, you've had a couple of CNN hosts recently um, who are no longer CNN hosts. One was Kathy Griffin with the severed Donald Trump head. CNN ended its relationship with Griffin for its New Year's Eve special. And then also Reza Aslan, who just seems like an incredibly mean person based on his, his Twitter account and what I've heard him say on TV in the past. Uh, but he's also gone after calling the, the president a piece of blank. Um, private entities enforcing their own speech codes with regard to your employment, that's different. Again, that's not a First Amendment issue. I do think that businesses need to work a bit more on for private citizens speaking in their private capacity, uh, not having so much sensitivity about firing people. And, uh, but here with the patent office, we are, again, talking about the government taking a hand in this and a, a very strong hand at that and deciding that there will be a federal bureaucrat or a group of federal bureaucrats who can determine whether or not a name like, for example, the Redskins. Is that so disparaging that it should not have trademark protection? Um, because, as you recall, the trademark office canceled uh, that team's trademark in 2014. Um, and so now I think you're going to see that the, the, that uh, football franchise is on stronger footing, is, is in a better place uh, right now to level a challenge against the federal government saying, you know, hey, uh, you're not you're not allowed to have that team name. You're not allowed to have the full legal protections based on a uh, subjective determination of offensiveness. So, you know, this is, uh, like I said, it's it's a victory. It doesn't mean that now all of a sudden free speech will reign throughout the country and everything is fine. But at least on this issue, you can find that this, the Supreme Court is still in agreement about it. And I think that it will have uh, some ramifications as well for the future of uh, hate speech legislation and um, transgenderism and the pronouns that have to be used. And, you know, this this sets, like I said, this sets a good precedent. Uh, team, I appreciate you so much uh, joining me as always. It's been great to uh, hang out with you um, from Boston here. That's where I did the, the Freedom Hut Boston today. It's been a lot of fun as I did the show up from our uh, our affiliate in Boston, Massachusetts. Love my time visiting Boston. First first real, uh, real visit here, I have to say. And uh, it's a great town, great food, great people. Really enjoyed Boston a lot. Um, as always, uh, please download the podcast of the show. Share it with a friend. And until tomorrow night, my friends, no matter what comes your way, as always, as always, Shields High.